Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have a superstar on the show. I have the one and only Judge Ken Starr. Stay with us. This is going to be spectacular. And we are back. So I want to. I'm going to read a little bit of of Judge Starr's bio here. He he has had a very distinguished career in academia, in in law and public service. Um, he's <laughs> you've seen him on Fox News and and you've heard him on various radio programs. He was the president and chancellor of Baylor University and Dean of the Pepperdine School of Law. And it's it's all on the Facebook post that I did. I want to bring Judge Ken Starr to the show. Judge, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ken. So good to be with you. You know, I I, I did a um a little personal survey and 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 it came back that you have the number one best first name ever. <laughs> yeah, a very objective survey. Very <laughs> subjectivity <laughs> eliminated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I knew. I knew that. I knew with a name like that, you had to be a great guy. So um, I'm very grateful to our mutual friend, Mark Victor Hansen, for. Wow. Um, for introducing us. So, um, yeah, somebody, somebody in the comments says two stars today. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so Judge, love, I, I just going to say, I, we I, love Mark Victor Hansen. So forgive my interruption. So no, please interrupt anytime, anytime you want. So, um, you know, I, I started the show about years ago and it was literally to help people get unstuck in life because we all go through trials and tribulations and um, some people don't know how to get unstuck. And I've been there. I know that. And um, so, you know, why don't you, if you wouldn't mind, just give a little bit of background on where you were born and raised. Yeah, I was born uh, here where we live in Texas. Uh, uh, I was born uh, in North Texas. My father, my late dad, was uh, a bivocational minister uh, and a barber to really make ends meet. But I grew up in San Antonio. We moved to San Antonio, my beloved hometown, yeah, when I was going to third grade and we went through, I went through uh, high school there. So I'm a native Texan, sixth generation on my father's side, then went off to school, graduated from George Washington. I was encouraged in high school by my counselor to go to Washington, D.C. I tried to go to Princeton, didn't work out. <laughs> the admissions office, very smart, <laughs> denied the admission. So, but it was a, a good thing that I went to Washington because that began talking about you know, breaking through walls and so forth. That started opening up doors. That was years in Washington, D.C., working on Capitol Hill to put my way through college. And I was torn, very briefly, torn between do I go to law school or do I go to graduate school? I was very interested in teaching. I was very interested in politics. I was very interested in law. Uh, I really didn't know which way to turn. And my faculty at George Washington University, I always be grateful uh, to them, guided me to grad school. So I go to Brown University uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and a, a PhD program. But I got a master's degree there, but said, you know, I just don't think this is what I'm really called to do. So I became, as, a, as I call myself, a refugee from grad school to law school. 
And it was in law school that I really found my professional calling, my footing, and so forth. And then so the rest is uh, all thanks to the, the, the goodness and guidance, uh, by God's grace, as I see it in my worldview, uh, of mentors along life's journey. And uh, that's one of my themes, Ken. Mentors are not only helpful, they are invaluable in guiding you along the pathway. Amen to that. I have a very good friend here who was a um, state senator with the GOP um, that he said, I, I called him. I said, I have Judge Ken Starr coming on. He's like, I met Judge Starr several years ago, and I guess you shook hands and gave him your book or something, but uh, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Bacon. But um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, very good friend of mine. But so so, you know, as as you I, I often wonder, because as a kid, a teenager, for me, I I really thought now I didn't end up going to college. I went to the University of Hard Knocks. Um, <laughs> but but, the you know, I, I did. I do remember I, I obsessed for a while about wanting to become an attorney. I always thought I would be a great attorney. Um, what was it? Was there something in your in your childhood or upbringing that made you think, man, I'm I'm going to become I'm going to become a, an attorney someday? I was interested in history as a kid, as a very young kid. I loved history. You know, growing up in San Antonio, the shadow of the Alamo history is just a, around yeah. you. Uh, the history, the glorious history of uh, Texas, etc. cetera. Uh, and I became convinced that in America, in contrast, this is a Tocquevillian point, Alexis de Tocqueville comes here and says, hey, you know, in this country, the people who really are opinion shapers are not the aristocrats to the extent we have such a thing in, in America. Uh, we certainly don't have the landed gentry and all that, uh, or the attorneys, uh, because we are a law-shaped economy we have a written constitution. Uh, our mother country didn't have one. Uh, Canada only got one in the last generation. But we had a written constitution. We, of course, based who we are on the Declaration of Independence. And then Gettysburg, the new birth of freedom, that was Abraham Lincoln, the self-trained lawyer. So lawyers were opinion shapers and influencers, and sometimes we sometimes we get a, a bad rap, but the fact uh, remains uh, everyone should have the bumper sticker. Have you hugged your lawyer today? And display it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, totally agree with that. So 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 you 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 graduate law school, and and you're did you go to work for a firm? Did you start your own? Did you? put out your own shingle, so to speak, or uh, what, where did things go for you at that point? Once again, it was a mentor, Ken, uh, the, one of the deans at uh, the Duke Law School, a uh, grab me, as it were, figuratively speaking, by the scruff of the neck and said, you're going to go clerk. And I was interested in clerking, so I was very privileged to be guided. It was almost a private placement through an interview process with a wonderful United States Circuit judge, Court of Appeals judge in the federal system named David Dyer from Miami, Florida. And dear Judge Dyer was so precious to me and 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 my one co-clerk at those benighted days so that each judge only had two law clerks today. Who knows, they have a number, but uh, I was so gifted in the sense of, I was given this gift of this wonderful mentor who had been a great lawyer, very successful lawyer himself, had represented all the great corporate clients in Miami in, in litigation. He was a real courtroom lawyer. Yeah. And I so admired him. And then, so I said, judge, toward the end of my clerkship, I, I didn't graduate first in my class, but I still would like to at least give it a shot. I'll feel better if I did to clerk at the Supreme Court of the United States. And he said, I'll call Lewis. Lewis was Justice Lewis Powell, who he knew well from private practice days, etc. And one thing led to another and the door that was open, Judge Justice Powell, was too bright and, and smart to hire me, but he was kind enough as a, with his generosity of spirit to uh, promote me, so to speak, 
to Chief Justice Warren Burger. So I was very privileged by virtue of David Dyer, going back to the Duke Law School, David Dyer, Lewis Powell, then I actually clerked for Warren Burger, and that opened up any number of doors. We have a legend on here, Jeffrey Gittimer, who's a great friend of mine that is is expressing his love for you, by the way. He's oh he's he's a great author, great friend. Um, so 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 you ended up in now is that where you and you and you did not and I well, Pardon then, me if I if I don't understand all of the the terminology. Sure, sorry. But, but so you you were not a judge yet at that point, right? Correct. Yeah, I was a law clerk, so this is what okay. law graduates do for judges for those okay. two judges. And I began the practice of law in California uh, with a wonderful law firm, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. That opened up a huge door in the fullness of time. I became a partner in that firm, but in the Washington, D.C. office. I started in California, but came to Washington, D.C. to practice law, became a partner January 1, 1981. On January 20, 1981, the shortest live partnership at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. I resigned from the partnership. <laughs> Somebody said, boy, you should have made it. You should, must have made a lot of money in those 20 days. No. <laughs> and I became chief, <laughs> became chief of staff to a Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher partner from Los Angeles, William French Smith in the Reagan administration. And then that opened up other doors. So just once again, mentors, mentors, and by God's grace, these opportunities came my way, which I did not merit. So when you say in the Reagan administration, does that mean that you worked under President Reagan? Yeah. Wow. 30 years ago, this this very year, uh, the year of our Lord, 2021. So I'm not going to say it was like yesterday, but it was day before yesterday, figuratively speaking, that as uh, as a young lawyer, I was uh, again in my 30s at this stage, mid 30s, uh, and uh, happily married, uh, two children at the time. A third was uh, destined to arrive again by God's grace. So I entered the Reagan administration. Uh, on inauguration day at the Justice Department as the chief of staff to the wow. attorney general. And William French Smith, Bill Smith, member of the greatest uh, generation, had served uh, in World War II in the Navy, he was a very good, good Navy man, great patriot, was very close to President Reagan, was his personal lawyer, but more relevantly, he was one of the senior partners of Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher in Los Angeles. And so I began very briefly, I began doing specific things right after the election. And the election was not one of these cliffhangers that we've yeah. had from time to time. Uh, President Reagan won handily, so it was very clear. And it also then Bill was the, Bill Smith, excuse me, the future attorney general was serving in Los Angeles as the head it was calling the trans, called the Transition Advisory Committee at our law firm. So President Reagan would come in from Pacific Palisades and uh, operate out of our law office. We're very proud of that. I mean, I think even the Democrats in the firm were, boy, this is pretty special. Wow. You know, President Reagan had been such a popular governor. I mean, not uncontroversial. Uh, he right. had controversy, yeah. but he'd been a very popular governor of California, overwhelmingly reelected. The guy won elections, right? <laughs> he sure did. And everybody <laughs> loved him, right? You could disagree yeah. with him, but how could you dislike him? He was not, shall I say, a divisive figure, <laughs> other yeah. than some of the Eastern press would take their shots at him, that he was cruel-hearted and these other very mean-spirited and blatantly wrong accusations. Yeah, I knew President Reagan. It was not an intimate of him, but I knew him well, and he was such a good human being, right? <laughs> and he Absolutely. cared deeply about this country, and hopefully every president cares deeply about the country, the country above self. And that's the kind of person Ronald Reagan was. And Bill Smith reflected that as someone who, as I say, had served in the Navy uh, during World War II and just was a great, great patriot uh, and, and a friend of freedom. Yeah. 
I, I I've often said Reagan was the best president mm. we've ever had. Mm. I, my opinion, of course, <laughs> but I think a lot of people share that opinion. Yeah. So, so, so you actually got to, I, I don't know if this is the right term or not, but hang out with, with president Reagan and, and, and have conversations. Yes. Not, not very many. Now I don't want to exaggerate because okay. I first of all, I was off in the department of justice, which is 10 blocks away from the white house, but we did rub shoulders from time to time. And wow. then, then we both spoke at uh, William French Smith's uh, funeral in, 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 in Pasadena, San Marino, California. And I spent time with the president uh, there and I just came to feel as if, really more vicariously through Bill Smith, who was one of his intimate. Here's an example of the intimacy. So a little bit of history here. As you know, in March, uh, only two months into his tenure, he was shot almost fatally yeah. uh, by John yeah. Hinckley, right? Yeah. And so he's in recovery uh, in the residence, as we call it. So he wasn't going into the Oval Office. But in the meantime, uh, Bill Smith, President, uh, Attorney General Smith, had learned that Justice Potter Stewart was going to step down from the Supreme Court of the United States. So uh, as the chief of staff, I knew that, but I was sworn to secrecy even with our own staff at the Attorney General's office. So it was a super close hold, and we did hold that. But here's right. how close Bill Smith was to Ronald Reagan. Bill goes over to the residence and in the residence with no White House staff room informs the president that he, the president, will have the opportunity to replace Potter Stewart. And then both Potter Stewart and Bill Smith, Attorney General Smith, went to the residence so that Justice Stewart could explain or just share the news personally with the attorney with the president of the United States that he Potter Stewart was stepping down it was just one of those be really beautiful things but it shows the closeness of the attorney general of the United States Bill yeah. Smith with the president of the United States that's absolutely incredible so so then um, we where do we go from from Reagan we go into um, I was appointed as a judge. That's okay. when I became a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Way above my head, uh, I was I had to work really hard because I said, look, I'm working with people like Antonin Scalia on the court, yeah. Robert Bork on the court, Justice Ru future Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I could keep going, just a pantheon of great figures. And I was 20 years their junior, yeah. uh, not as smart as they were. So I really had to uh, work hard, but I, I, I did. I worked very hard and tried to make my own contribution, modest though it may have been to the work of the court. And uh, I served very happily on that court for six years. Wow. Uh, and uh, then uh, after President Bush 41, and I was closer to President Bush 41 than I was to President Reagan I'm from Texas. I knew him when he was in the House of Representatives and you know, in Congress back in the 1960s, so a long time ago now. So uh, I was asked to become the Solicitor General of the United States. And so I moved then from the courthouse, which I loved, uh, at 6th and Constitution to back to the Justice Department four blocks away at 10th and Constitution and became the Solicitor General under President Bush 41. So now all this time, did you maintain a, a residence in Texas or were you just living in D.C.? The, 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 actually, Northern Virginia. So okay. when, when I got the clerkship uh, with Chief Justice Berger, we were actually in California and Los Angeles living okay. in Mid Wilshire. I took the bus to work. Yeah, I think that's against the laws, of, at least at the time of California. I'm sorry. You don't take a bus. you got to have a car. <laughs> well, we had one car between the two of us. And so, yes, we got the car. Alice was working at USC, University of Southern California. She was the one person in the family qualified to go into higher education, which I was destined to, to do. You know, I, there, there it was. And maybe that's why I got fired at Baylor. You were utterly unqualified to, 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 to do it. So anyway, so 
we moved from California and we lived, uh, we were about to buy a house in California when the opportunity came to be in Washington, D.C. So we bought a beautiful uh, Victorian townhouse uh, in Ca on Capitol Hill, which we adored. We loved it. But when children started arriving, we said, well, we're going to head to the suburbs. So all those years, save for those first three years in Washington, D.C., we lived in Northern Virginia in McLean, Virginia, Fairfax County. Okay. So, so you have got one heck of a sense of humor. I love it. So, so is it yeah, safe to say, <laughs> yeah. where's Alice? So, yeah, so, <laughs> so is it, is it safe to say then that at some point you have suffered from imposter syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> no, no one wants to imposter me. <laughs> so, no, but you felt uh, like you 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 were out of your league. You oh said, yeah, you said, like like wow, what am I doing here? <laughs> exactly. This is like uh, Senator Birch by of Indiana. I was on a panel with him. He was the last one to speak, and he <laughs> said, "Well," in his great Hoosier accent, he said, "Well, I feel like the caboose on a fast moving train." So. <laughs> So I was the uh, I was the caboose moving from one train to another. Oh, oh that's it's rough being funny. the caboose. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get swung all over the place. You just try, try to stay on the track. <laughs> I get it. I totally get that. So you you um you you became a judge. Then the the what's the solicitor general? I should probably know that. As you can tell, I'm not a history buff. <laughs> yeah, what that's, is why, that's why what? you have the show <laughs> it's so i can learn right? you know, your mind isn't burdened with this kind of stuff <laughs> so yeah it's a fancy sounding name the solicitor general argues cases in the supreme court for the justice department and for the executive branch so it's a great great position it's a small office of about 20 lawyers that may sound like a lot but no, the Justice Department has thousands of lawyers, but this is a very small cohort. And then just a very interesting part of American history. The office was actually created in 1870 in the aftermath of the Civil War during the Grant administration when the legal responsibilities of the Justice Department, especially with respect to reconstruction in the South, just skyrocketed. So the Attorney General essentially said, and uh, President Grant was a very, very smart guy, <laughs> underestimated by much of history. But Ron Chernow's recent 10 fantastic biography on Grant shows what a really fantastic person he was. He was ill-served in, in the government by some crooks around him, but he was very a person of integrity. Anyway, he knew we've got to have infrastructure here. And so the solicitor generalship came into being in the law of 1870 and it's been, it, the responsibilities have changed somewhat, but the primary responsibility, the most visible responsibility is to present cases in the Supreme Court of the United States. And that's an appoint, is that a, an appointed position? It's yes. not ele elected. Correct. Nominated by the president okay. uh, and confirmed by the Senate. Jeez. How okay, so I, I've always wanted to ask somebody. I don't you're the first person I've ever met that had had to go through a Senate confirmation. What was that like? For me, it was actually pleasant. The uh, the chairman of the committee at the time was someone named Joe Biden. <laughs> and I had a very good relationship with then Senator uh, Biden, Chairman uh, Biden. And we had a huge uh, conversation there. The only controversy was really my age. Uh, did, uh, you know, who is this guy and so forth and so on. So, yeah, I'd gone through a confirmation process uh, previously and so forth. So uh, anyway, both my confirmation as a judge and my confirmation as solicitor general were essentially pleasant and uneventful the way confirmation hearings should be. <laughs> but especially these days, they, they just aren't that way. You know. Or I, I, I gotta say, and, and, um, you have, you write about it in your new book, mm -hmm. um, the confirmation of, of, of justice, um, Amy Coney Barrett. Yes. She, it was brutal. That poor oh. woman. 
That, that was, I thought that was brutal. Um, and Clarence Thomas, I believe went, went yeah. through a pretty brutal confirmation. So, um, but so you had, you had it easy. They took it easy on you. <laughs> well, I, I, as I say, when I was going on as judge, really the only controversy, happily, there were no skeletons in the closet. Yeah. Um, and so th there was nothing to, and it's also during the first Reagan term. And, you know, if a president has a mandate and President Reagan ha had a mandate, then the other side just doesn't mess with it, right? Just say, okay, let's just go forward with this. Um, but when I was being uh, confirmed as uh, as solicitor general, uh, the Democrats were in charge, you know, elections every two years, right? So the Senate had flipped. Uh, there was a Republican Senate when it was nominated to go on the Court of Appeals. Uh, but there was a democratically controlled Senate when I was then nominated to President Bush 41. And uh, it could have been acrimonious, but uh, it, it, it wasn't because I was a judge and I'd served for six years. So I no longer had the youth. Uh, fa I was in my early 40s, so still young. But uh, as, as in, in my profession at the time viewed as, as still young, but I had a track record on the Court of Appeals. I'd had uh, a non-controversial record as chief of staff to the attorney general, even though there were controversial issues, sure. lots of controversial issues in the Justice Department during my three years of service. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I did not have to go through the brutal experience of so many nominees, uh, including, obviously, uh, above all, Justice Thomas, who was uh, treated very, in my judgment, very unfairly. I I I'll, I will um, second that. <laughs> I, I concur. So so you know, it's amazing to me because you're, although you're a judge, you're being appointed by politicians. I mean, I don't, right? Yeah. Um, and these are, I mean, career politicians. Some of them they've been been in Washington for a long time. So right, how? How does, does, does the, is there any, I know people that work in the federal system and, and, and it seems like there's always a shift when there's a shift of power, like, yes. oh, my job's no longer there. Was there any of that going on for you where you were like, ah, oh, there's a new administration coming in and what's going to happen yeah. to me? Well, that's exactly right, because I was serving under President Bush 41, and I loved serving as Solicitor General. I enjoyed arguing cases in the Supreme Court. I was arguing cases in other courts of appeals across the country, federal courts of appeals, not in the state courts, and enjoyed that greatly. But we have these things called elections, and the election of uh, 92 brought in uh, President Clinton. Uh, you'll recall Ross, well, you're too young, but Ross Perot. <laughs> Ran. I remember Ross Perot. <laughs> yeah, Ross for boss, right? 1992. Yeah. And and he took for a third-party candidate a huge swath of the vote, the most since Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose uh, movement, when he, Teddy Roosevelt, fell, uh, fell out with uh, President William Howard Taft. Uh, and that, of course, had cost President Taft the election in 1912. And so, you know, people can argue, the politicians can argue. I happen to think that uh, Ross Perot cost President Bush his re-election, but we were in an economic downturn. We were coming out, but remember the colorful James Carville, it's the economy stupid. <laughs> and President Clinton was a superb campaigner. And so here was youth, energy, let's let someone else, but uh, let's face it, he got 43% of the vote, right? He did not get uh, 50% anywhere close to it. Yeah. Uh, and so the remainder, the 57%, was divided between Ross for boss and the incumbent president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. And so off I go. And so that's when I returned to private practice uh, in Washington, D.C. I thought I was going to go back with my old law firm. But there were some structural reasons that had nothing to do with compensation. I wanted to serve in, uh, in leadership and governance. And then I had the opportunity with a wonderful law firm named Kirkland and Ellis with a large Washington office, but Chicago-based. And so I resumed 
um, and finally resumed the practice of law, but finally began some serious teaching as part, and I made that clear, I want to begin teaching. So I was teaching uh, at New York University, pre-Zoom. So I'd go up on Thursday nights uh, or very early Friday morning to NYU to New York wow. and would teach at NYU Law School, which is a wonderful law school. Is that a flight? Yeah, I would sometimes take the train. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, more than once, I would see uh, then Senator Biden on the train. Right? He <laughs> he'd hop off at Wilmington, and I talked to him a couple mm -hmm. of times on, on on the train. Uh, he was to say that I know people. It's very divided, polarized. You know, but to say that Senator then Senator Biden was affable would be an understatement. So you know, just hugely open, relational, and so forth. Uh, and so I had a couple of train conversations. But yeah, I would either take the train or uh, the shuttle uh, from D.C. up what it now is Reagan National Airport up to New York to LaGuardia. Wow. So so you 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 know some things <laughs> that you could probably never speak of. But I I think that that. Um, there was a point and I don't, I don't know the exact point, but you were, um, you have a book, uh, a book about the, the Clinton investigation probably, um, but maybe skyrocketed you into stardom was, was, was that, I mean, obviously you weren't well known, but that I think, um, how did that all come about? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. Yeah. I was minding my own business, uh, <laughs> practicing law, uh, and, uh, teaching at NYU and, uh, the Clinton administration it had a really rough start. Uh, for those of us who said so that first year was really, very, very tough. Yeah. And so I'm just observing while practicing law and so on and so forth. And then the call, the fateful call came in the summer of 1994. So the president took office January 20th, 1993. So I was minding my own business for that year and a half. And the call came from my former court, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. One of the judges on that court with whom I had served, his name is David Sintel, a distinguished judge who is still serving there, was the head of the Independent Counsel Division, as a mouthful, the Independent Counsel Division of the United States Courts, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. What a mouthful. Wow. And that was a three-judge panel chaired by David Sintel, and their job was to appoint what we now call special counsels. Or what we used to call special prosecutors. <clears throat> then they were called the name change. And this mechanism, which is very unusual, was created during the Carter administration by the Ethics and Government Act as a post-Watergate reform. So in light of Richard Nixon, Archibald Cox, the Saturday Night Massacre, all of that set the stage for the passage of the Ethics and Government Act, which had a number of provisions. And one of the provisions was to create this unusual mechanism for three judges to appoint an independent counsel to investigate the president or others close to the president. So I was actually appointed by three judges in 1994 to serve as independent counsel to investigate President Clinton. The original idea was it was the Whitewater land deal and was there fraud, financial crimes committed in connection with that land deal. But the investigation grew. It had different components. And, of course, most notoriously, then in January of 1998, uh, was transmogrified into the Monica Lewinsky-related investigation. Wow. And you were you headed that whole thing? That whole thing. Wow. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, definitely for poorer. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to stay, and that's that's one of the things. And I, I have this sense about you um, that it feels like you're very objective. Like I you just, 
Thank you. You, you seem to stay very objective um, because I couldn't speak of, 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 of Biden as friendly as, I'm sorry, I, I'm too, uh, I'm too non-objective. But so, so, and I love what Gittimer says here, ethics in government, oxymorons. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> well, but, it was an effort. <laughs> well, but you know, you think back to the Reagan era and and you know one of one of Reagan's one of my favorite quotes is is what Reagan says about about the the government. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Or you know more government. What did he say? More government isn't the answer or, or something. I I can't remember exactly right. what it was. But, and Ken, but, that used to be a bipartisan sentiment. Uh, part of President to go back, yeah. as President Carter's uh, mandate was was to uh, curb the size of government. Yeah. Regulatory yeah. reform, the, the, the bureaucracy had become bloated, et cetera. This is 1976 to 1980. Yeah. And, uh, and Stephen Breyer, now a justice on the Supreme Court, served during those times uh, as uh, a, a real regulatory reform person in the United States Senate under Senator Ted Kennedy, yeah. right? We got to get control over the bureaucracy. Uh, Griffin, uh, Griffin Bell, who was a great, great man, was a very fine attorney general under President Carter, wrote in his memoir, the largest threat to America liberty is the bureaucracy. This is not a sagebrush rebellion. This isn't the teapot. I started to say teapot dome. I know, I know the tea party. The tea party, right. My, my small mind is cluttered with too much history. So the tea party phenomenon is all part of a long meta narrative about, hey, liberty in this country. We need liberty and the bureaucracy all too frequently stifles freedom. Yeah. Sound yeah. familiar? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and look, over the last, um, <clears throat> I don't know, let's just go with eight months-ish, um, It's we've experienced some some insanity in, <laughs> in the election cycle. And, now, where, do you, and, where, do you, where do you stand on these issues, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been, I, I, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. It's been crazy. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't even, I can't even watch the news. I can't do it because it just makes me insane. I get too, I, I'm too emotional about it. So, but you know, Jeffrey Gittimer asked a question in the comments a, a little bit ago, and and I'm I'm curious what your what your take on it. You know, they're they're going through the audit process right now in in Arizona. What if what if what if I know this is a what if, but what if they find that Trump actually won Arizona? What happens? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> but nothing, not, nothing, wow. nothing legally, but a lot politically. Right. Because that will remind us that, hey, this is the issue of integrity in elections is serious. And to even say that now brings the wrath of all these forces. Oh, you're against democracy. No, we're all should be in favor of honest government. And after the narrow election in 2000, a bipartisan commission was created, chaired by Jimmy Carter and by uh, uh, former Secretary of State Jim Baker. And I think everyone then had confidence, okay, they're going to give it their best shot, whether I agree or disagree and so forth. The commission is in good hands. And it sure was. And guess what? One of the things he said was watch out for what we now call mail-in ballots. Absentee ballots will give rise to potential. They said it is always bad, but it gives rise to the potential for fraud. Don't we care about honest elections? So I think if the Arizona audit, and it's a big if, said that the election was actually quite different, uh, the election outcome, and President Trump won that state, it'll be a real wake-up call for fair-minded people. 
for yeah. fear-minded people. You know, we've got a problem. We need to address that uh, that problem. Uh, we want honest. If you don't say you care about honest elections as opposed to just every vote counts, oh, really, every fraudulent vote counts, there's right. no suggestion of fraud. And that's what we've seen, right? There's yeah. no suggestion of fraud. Well, let's test that. And my view is I don't make accusations. You sure. You know, say I was objective. I don't make accusations and I don't embrace theories. I yeah. simply say as to John Adams before the Boston Massacre jury, facts, facts, facts. Please don't give me conspiratorial theories. Give me facts. And that's, I think, what all fair-minded people should do. Facts. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that's that's how you rose to the levels you've risen to as as a judge as well. So, you know, <clears throat> I'm sitting here. People are sending me text messages and and all. Don't read these. them. Don't read them. They'll. I, <laughs> it's bad for your blood pressure. <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm like, now I have to eat more broccoli. Thanks. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so. No, that gets you, get you gas. Don't do that either. <laughs> That's really bad. <laughs> so, I, I mean, and and yeah, there's a lot of, of what ifs, but, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of, of, of the states now looking at a full-blown audit on that. Yeah. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens Absolutely. because I think, um, I think, I really think that there is a, uh, let's just go, we'll say 75 million or so. Um, people that that are like, what happened here? This right. something doesn't feel right. But um, so so I want to talk about your book, and and I'm gonna hold it up and show everybody oh, religious thanks. liberty in crisis. Um, by the way, I'm an Amazon influencer, and this book is in my Amazon store. So you can go to KenWalls.shop; it's there. And and so what? And we could talk about the Clinton book that you wrote as well, if you want. But um, and I know there was a little story behind that. If you care to share it, if not, we, we can talk about this. But I, this book is phenomenal. It's absolutely a wonderful book. I'm almost finished with it. It's it's one of those books that you can't read it super fast. It I, I've for me. I'm not the history buff that you are, but I found it. I found it so interesting. All of the cases, um, especially Supreme Court cases that you bring up, and 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 it's incredible. So, what made you decide to to write this book, Religious yeah, and, Liberty in Crisis? And, and thank you, Ken, and thank you for saying the kind things about the book. In a word, pandemic. When the pandemic hit, and the governors in some states, obviously not all began issuing these very sweeping orders in the interest of public health. And we're all, of course, public health, governors, mayors, appropriately step in in a public health crisis. Yeah. But I was deeply concerned about the way churches and other institutions were being, were being treated, uh, treated in what I thought was really an unreasonable way, uh, an unfair way that was really not required by any means. I'll give a very specific example, which I think brings it home. The governor of Nevada issued an order that permitted Caesar's Palace and the other casinos to operate one half capacity, but prevented churches, synagogues, and so forth from operating with more than or worshiping, gathering more than 50 5 people, no matter how large the auditorium or the sanctuary. And no matter the fact that these churches, and so many of the churches are very large churches with very large facilities, were scrupulously abiding by social distancing, mask wearing, and so forth. They said, as, as, as we say, that ain't right. Uh, so I began thinking more systematically about the book, uh, writing a book, and did. And so Religious Liberty in Crisis was generated by the pandemic, but it has a much broader focus. And thank you again for your kind words. I wanted the great principles, identify six, great principles of religious liberty to be accessible and understood by every single literate American. I wrote this so high school civic students, homeschoolers, uh, 
are students about to go off to college and they're going to be facing, especially if they're people of faith, some real challenges to their voice. They may be cha challenged in the sense of, do I have the courage to speak up when I think that the professor is really completely off base? So this is a book that is essentially dedicated to America's culture of freedom, which is, I say, is now under assault from many different levels, many different officials, many different sources in our culture, including educational sources. You know, I, I think in another huge point, because I've read most of the book, um, is, is, again, you're very objective. It's not just right. about Christianity. It's about Christianity. It's about Judaism. It's about every religious practice in America and how, you know, I mean, you use the word government overreach right. in the book. Um, I saw it here with our church and, and I was like, why are we shutting down churches? That seems like it didn't seem right. It just didn't, right. didn't feel right. And that the governor would have, have the ability to tell a, a, a minister to not gather and, and worship. Well, the governor did not have that ability. Uh, at least did not have that ability to issue an order that had the effect of discriminating against churches in contrast to casinos or Walmart. I love Walmart. Ain't got nothing against Walmart, but you can't, consistent with our great principles of freedom, governor or mayor, say, okay, Walmart, you're okay. And here was really kind of, I think this was a straw that broke a lot of uh, backs of the believing community. Liquor stores, essential, right? Marijuana shops where marijuana is, is legal, you're essential. Churches, you're not essential. Wrong. The First Amendment condemns that, and the Supreme Court of the United States, and this is part of the hopeful message of the book, time and again over the past 40 years, the Supreme Court has rallied to the side of religious liberty. They've done it already this term of court. We're likely to see, Ken, in the next two weeks, another major decision in favor of religious liberty. That's a hope, a prediction that religious liberty will once again carry the day as it does almost all the time in the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I didn't say all federal judges, did I? No. No. All too frequently, the federal judges, the district judges, with all due respect, I love them, and all too frequently, the federal courts of appeals, I love them, I served as one for six years, yeah. get it wrong. But the Supreme Court of the United States, and frequently by overwhelming margins, we're not just talking about, oh, well, it's just the conservatives versus the progressives. No, 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 no. One very quick example. It's the first principle that I talk about of the great principles in the book. The principles of churches being able to be free to, I call it the autonomy principle, fancy mm -hmm. to, you govern your own affairs. The Supreme Court of the United States unanimously told the Obama administration, EEOC, and the Obama administration, Justice Department, hands off, you cannot go after a Christian school in Michigan for firing one of its teachers, even though that firing, if it had not been a Christian school or a religiously affiliated school, might very well have violated the civil rights laws. Right. Our civil rights laws are precious. They are very important to us. I am thankful for our civil rights laws. But the Supreme Court, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God bless her, it was a unanimous court said, no, EEOC under President Obama, you leave that school alone. This is a powerful principle, very powerful principle, the idea of freedom of conscience. And that's under assault right now with the Equality Act, which sounds, oh, we're all in favor of equality, but what the Equality Act is passed by the U.S. House of Representatives and pending in the Senate would do would be to squelch freedom of conscience, which is one of the great principles of American liberty and our sweet land of, of liberty. So I want this to be a Paul Revere type call, not just 
the culture is challenging. We all see that, but here is the response. We can all be, as it were, as in Lexington and Concord of all, we can be Minutemen not armed with muskets, but armed with the principles of American freedom. We can march to the Village Green and we can engage the culture, including our on school board members. Amen. <laughs> and, and I'm amen. And the whole church said amen. So, so I, I, now, now I'm going to get fired up. So, so, so I think that, and, and there's a question that somebody just asked, and I'm going to pop it up on screen in a second, but I, I want, I want to ask, you know, it seems like because we have, I, I won't, I won't call out names, but there are, plenty of governors who way overstepped there was a and and you bring it up in the book the the fellow in um in florida the the minister that got arrested the, yeah. and, and yeah. there were more than one i mean there were there were several yeah. ministerial arrests that right. occurred and 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 it's here's the thing there, uh, it, I, I feel like the even if it's the Supreme Court, because I have another friend that has a Supreme Court thing came down a few weeks ago and, and ruling of the FTC keeps overstepping their bounds. And now they're trying to sneak around and pass a new bill through Congress or something mm -hmm. that, that that's, you know, to, to circumvent what the Supreme Court just ruled on. And, and so there's all these political moves going on, but it doesn't seem like anybody's getting held accountable. Like, what is the, like, okay, yes, bad governor, you shouldn't have done that, but what's, what are the, the repercussions? Are there any? Yeah. Guess what? Gavin Newsom of California <laughs> is having to pay, well, not out of his pocket. Right. So unfortunately, it's the taxpayers, doggone yeah. it but is having to pay attorney's fees to the churches that got closed down, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. one of the beauties of uh, federal law, that when these cases are brought and you eventually win in the Supreme Court of the United States, you get the recovery of attorney's fees. Now you say, well, what are the repercussions of that? But they also lost. The point is the Supreme Court of the United States can't lock the governor up, right? But it's a huge hand spanking yeah. through you, and through other voices, we get the word out. Hey, guess what? And here's a big, big stick. Remember Teddy Roosevelt? Walk softly, carry a big stick. Well, yeah. I say speak loudly and carry <laughs> and carry a big stick. And one of the big sticks is if now, in light of the clarification of the law and church closures, some governor or mayor does something like this, then that governor or mayor can personally be held liable for punitive damages. Personally. Personally. Wow. Okay. Big stick. And all it takes is for the lawyer to send a letter to the governor's counsel and say, the law is now absolutely clear. If you want to litigate this and you lose, you will have established, here's the, the beautiful language, a clearly established federal right. The Supreme Court has said, don't treat churches, synagogues, etc. dissimilarly. If you do, boom, you can be hit for punitive damages. That's awesome. That's good news. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of good news in the book, Brother Ken. <laughs> uh, trust me, I know. And everybody watching needs to go get a copy of it. Here's the question. So does religious freedom come before public safety during a pandemic? And I have an opinion about that. I'm not sure what my opinion matters, but what, no. what do you say? No, first of all, it's not that it comes first. It is how do we achieve both goals of, a, of achieving public health? And you can do that through social distancing and masking requirements. So, yes, does the governor have the authority to require people going into church to keep social distancing? Yes, presumptively they do. Now, not forever, right? If they try to do now, okay, everybody, if you've been vaccinated, everybody's hands goes up. Okay, 
no matter what, the governor says, I don't care that you've been vaccinated, right? You're going to keep socially distanced. Oh, and you're not going to have the choir sing. Well, excuse me, governor, you've gone too far. So you have to bring the question down to the specifics. Can both interests, the interest in free exercise, which is a paramount constitutional interest, and then the interest in public health be accommodated, which is another one of the great principles, one of the six. Hey, we're getting there. The six great principles, including accommodating religious belief and religious expression. Right. I, I mean, in California, there were they like there was some insane, completely illogical, like you can have a gathering of six people in the front yard, but nobody can use the bathroom or something. Oh, like, yeah, just madness. Now, this was absolute madness. So you have to say, is someone just utterly intoxicated with power? But this, right. this goes back to you and say, oh, you're just a conservative Republican. That's true. But it goes back to the bipartisan interest in maintaining freedom. I keep summoning to the stand Jimmy Carter and Griffin Bell, get control over the bureaucracy. And we should not be at all shy about saying government, governor, your excellency, whatever you want us to call you. The <laughs> baseline is freedom in this country. This is not, this is not Venezuela the, <laughs> or Cuba. Here in the sweet land of liberty, freedom is the baseline. Now justify what you're doing. And maybe the, maybe the government can justify it. But here's the beauty of these great principles. When the government comes up, well, here's our excuse. It's public health. So, okay, now let's try the case. What facts do you have? Oh, there we are. We come back to facts. What <laughs> facts do you have that suggest that that person can go into Walmart, right, but cannot go to church. You tell me that. What's your principle? What's your principle? No logic. There's no logic yeah. in it. Yeah. None. And we, we, we witnessed that, you know, somebody asked about mask mandates. Yeah. I, that seems, that seems unconstitutional as well, but uh, what do I know? I don't. No, uh, the short answer to that is the government can take reasonable steps, and that's not self-defining, right? Yeah. The Fourth Amendment speaks about unreasonable searches and seizures. How do you know whether something is reasonable? You've got to, oh, there we go. We go back to fact land. <laughs> Don't debate it at a philosophical level. We're a practical people. It's one of the beautiful strengths of the American people. What works, right? Does this work? Oh, that didn't work. Trial and error. The scientific method, practical, good old common sense. So. Is there a justification for a mask mandate? Because that's a serious intrusion. To say that you got to wear your mask out on the beaches of California, ooh, just by that. My own view was that's ridiculous on its face and is unconstitutional. Yeah. But again, does it go back to, does it, does that go back to personal opinion or does it go back to right. scientific fact or, you know, and there's so many, so many avenues you can go with that. However, there's only one avenue you can go with this amazing book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, and that is you have to get a copy. Now, is there a way um, besides Amazon? Is Do you have a website that people can purchase this from? Or No, but I do have, uh, for those in the uh, household of faith, so to speak, a, a wonderful alternative, and that is Hearts. Are you ready for this? Hearts? Mm -hmm. And my and mine's books, uh, heartsandmindsbooks.com. Okay. It is a for profit, uh, family owned Christian bookstore. And I have no financial interest in it. <laughs> They'll give a discount, they will ship it. They're really wonderful. Uh, I'm a member of the board of the Christian Legal Society, and the Borgers, uh, Byron and Beth Borger, always put books in there. <laughs> Their trolley, and they and they 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 head to wherever the Christian Legal Society annual meeting uh, is, and they set up a bookstore in the hotel, etc. They're wonderful people, so that that is certainly one alternative. And it's it's heartsandminds.com. Hearts and minds books. You need the word books oh, in there. Heartsandmindsbooks.com. I'm gonna scroll that across the bottom. Oh, Everybody good. go over to heartsandmindsbooks.com. 
um, or you can get it on Amazon as well. And look, my wife is on here and she put it up there as well. So thank <laughs> you. Great. Yeah. So, so Great. yeah, she, she watches just to make sure I don't say anything too stupid. But then it's too late. <laughs> 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 I know. Well, uh, Judge, it has been an absolute honor and privilege to you. have you on the show. Um, I, I Everybody needs to get the word out about this book. It is an absolutely incredible book. I won't tell, Mar like Mark Victor Hansen, who, who introduced us, I haven't even read his entire new book yet. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful book. Ask. Ask, Ask and you shall receive. Right. Amen. It's a yeah. great, great book. Yeah. So it is, it is great. But so thank you thank for you. this yes. time. Thank you. And if you would stay with me, I, just so we can wrap up after I finish the, the live stream. Thank right. you so much. It's been a great honor to have you on the show. So stay with me and I'll, I'll chat with you in a, in a second. Everybody have a wonderful day and thank you so much for watching. And if you haven't, share this out on all of your social media platforms. Thanks so much.